The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'm going to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study in the Upper Room Discourse. We've been in this study for a while. This really runs from, the teaching runs from 13 to 16, and it gives us a unique look because this is our Lord teaching His disciples the very last night of His life. All right? Very soon, He will be arrested and crucified. So we get in on this teaching as He gives to His disciples to prepare them for His absence. Now, once the Lord finishes His teaching to the disciples, He prays for them in chapter 17. And this truly is the Lord's Prayer. It's not found in Matthew, it's found right here in John. All right? And in this prayer, He asks the Father to fulfill all that He has promised to these disciples of His. But not only to the disciples, but also for all who will believe in the future. Verse 20 of chapter 17 says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. Now, who is Yeshua praying for here? The these is the disciples. Alright? And then He says, for those who will believe in Me through their word. Who is that? That's everyone else, people. That's all of us, okay? Everyone who will believe through their word. Well, they wrote the New Testament, so anybody who's come to faith, the Lord is praying for here. So the Lord's teaching in the upper room, I think, has a lot of application to us. Now, there's some texts that you know I don't think apply to us because I think He's dealing specifically with them and their mission they're going to have to carry out, but a lot of this teaching applies to us. And I think something that definitely does is in chapter 15. We're just finishing that up this morning. But 15 can be divided up this way. Uh, John 15, 1-17 is dealing with the, the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And then in verse 18-16, through 16, 4, describes the world's hatred for Yeshua and His disciples. Now, so far in this chapter, we have seen that Yeshua tells those who are clean. He says in 15-3, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. So He's talking to those who are clean. That would be those who believe in Him. Okay, That would be those who have eternal life. That would be those who are His children. Okay, Do we get the picture here? He's talking to believers. And then in verse 4, He says, Abide in Me. Now this is a strong word in the original text. It's in a tense that expresses a decisive command. It's in the active voice. That is something we are expected to do. So believers are commanded... To abide in Christ. Now, some people see no difference between a Christian and a disciple. But to me, this text shows the difference. In this text, Christians are told to abide. And to abide is to be a disciple. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. To abide is to bear fruit. To bear fruit is to prove discipleship. Fruit-bearing is so bound up with discipleship that one stands for the other by metonymy. Now, to be a disciple 
is to bear fruit. To bear fruit is to be a disciple. So there's a difference between believing and abiding. And Yeshua commands believers to abide. Now verse 4 says, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in Me. Now these are both what's called third-class conditional sentences in the Greek, which means potential action. A third-class condition is maybe you will, maybe you won't. So believers are commanded to abide, but they might not. They might not. So that tells me there's got to be a difference there between being a Christian and abiding. Because Christians are told to abide, but they might not abide. He says, if you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, this is another third-class condition. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. So those who are clean may abide, but they might not. They're commanded to, but they might not. Do we always do everything we're commanded to do? No, not really. Okay, so we're commanded to abide, and it's really good if we do. See, it is not assumed that all believers are going to abide. So there must be some distinction between believing and abiding. In verse 9, Yeshua tells believers to abide in my love. Now, this is an aorist active imperative. Believers are commanded to abide in Christ's love. So again, abiding in His love is not automatic. It's something which we are commanded to do and which takes effort and action on our part. So how do we abide in His love? Well, He's very clear on that matter. We abide in His love by keeping His commandments. He says, if you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. Guess what condition this one is? Again, it's a third class conditional sentence. Maybe you will. If you keep My commandments, maybe you will, maybe you won't. So those who are clean, believers may or may not keep His commandments. They're commanded to, but they might not do that. And if they don't keep His commandments, they're not abiding in His love. See, it's not assumed that all believers are going to abide. So there must be some distinction between them. Some teach that if you're a believer, you will keep all the commandments. Just It's like it's automatic. You get saved and boom, automatically you do everything that's right. Well, then why are there so many exhortations in the Bible to do what's right if we do it automatically? Seems like a waste of time, doesn't it? He says believers may or may not keep the commandments. Abiding or obedience is not automatic for believers. It's something we are commanded to do. He says you are my friends if you keep my commandments. And yeah, again, it's a third class conditional sentence. It gives the condition for friendship, which is obedience. So again, these believers may or may not keep Yeshua's commandments and be His friends. Okay, well, hopefully you get my point here. Okay? (laughs) I've tried to stress it because I think it's really important. Because if you think abiding is the same as being a Christian, then you just get saved and you just don't have to do anything. But I think there's a distinction. And I think that distinction is important. And I think if more Christians would abide, I think we'd have a bigger impact on the world in which we live. So believers are commanded to abide in Christ. This will only happen if the Word of Christ dwells in us. We've got to be in the Word of God. And then we have to keep it as we learn it. We have to live it out. It's requiring something of us. 
as we know the Word and obey the Word, we will abide in Christ. And as we abide in Christ, we're going to bear much fruit. And as we abide in Christ and bear fruit, we are going to experience His joy. I mean, there's so many benefits to abiding in Christ. Just the, the, to walk in intimate fellowship with our Lord, to experience His joy. But joy is not the only thing we experience if we abide in Christ. We'll also get to experience hatred and persecution. You say, whoa, I don't like that. I mean, that doesn't sound real good, right? Well, verse, in verse 18, our Lord moves from talking about the blessings of heavenly love to the realities of earthly hatred. If the world hates you, first class condition, since the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The world hates believers because it hates Christ. Alright, you probably know some believers and you say, the world doesn't seem to hate them, they don't be persecuted, you know, everybody seems to get along with them. Well, that's because maybe they're not demonstrating Christ too much. Because it's Christ the world hates. And if you're a Christian and you're just fitting in, there's not going to be any repercussions, so to speak. But we are His representative. We are His image bearers. We are to carry the truth to the world. Now, if we're not doing that, obviously they're not going to hate us. We blend in with them. Paul teaches this truth in 2 Timothy 3.12. This is a principle we all have to understand. Indeed, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's clear, people. If you live a godly life, if you abide in Him, the world is going to persecute you. Because the world hates Christ and they hate those who are like Christ. Again, if you fit in, if you're not abiding, the world will just think you're wonderful. So think about that. Now we saw in our last study, verses 18-25, through chapter 15, that our Lord warned His followers that persecution is a given for His disciples. The very ones who wanted to kill Yeshua, now are going to want to kill His disciples. But, It was the mission of the disciples to take the Gospel to the world. They're called to do that. But you have to ask, well, how can Yeshua expect His disciples to witness to the world with all this hostility and persecution? We're supposed to take the Gospel to people who hate us and who want to kill us? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we're supposed to take the Gospel to people who are dead? People who don't seek after God? People who don't understand the truth. People whose minds are blinded. And on top of being dead and blind, they hate us. So how in the world can we take the Gospel to those kind of people? How can we have any success in that endeavor? The only answer is, what? Through the Spirit. We've got to have the power of the Spirit. okay? And Yeshua promises them the Spirit who brings life. We saw this back in John 6.63. It is the Spirit who gives life. Life. People without Christ are dead. They're unregenerate. The Spirit gives them life so they can believe. We couldn't do this on our own, people. I mean, you're taking the Gospel to people who are dead? It's like going to the funeral home and telling people about this special deal you got for them. They don't care. I mean, the people who are dead in the funeral home anyway. Okay? Some people 
Some people in the funeral home are alive, but I'm talking go to the dead people, all right? Let's say go to the cemetery, all right? And you're, you, I can do a great deal for you people. They don't care. They can't do anything. And so that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so he brings that up in the next verse. Verse 26, he says, but when the Helper comes. See, your task, guys, is, is tremendous and it's impossible. When the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I'm going to send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. Now, some teach that this teaching about the Spirit breaks up the flow of the context. And so they suggest that these two verses were added by some other source later. They say this because verse 18 to 25 deal with persecution, and then 16, 1 through 3 also deals with persecution. So you got these two verses, and they just feel like these things are out of place. But these two verses fit very well. They explain how the conflict between Yeshua and the world continues after he's dead. Okay, if the world hates Christ, Christ died, how does, it, does that stop? No, because now Christ is manifest through His children, so this conflict goes on. It's just the conflict gets worse now because now they're hating every individual Christian. And He's also telling them, His believers, listen, I want you to take comfort and strength through the fact that though the world hates you, though the world will persecute you, the Holy Spirit will be with you. So Yeshua identifies the Spirit here in the same way He did in John 14, 6-17. He's called the Helper, and He's called the Spirit of Truth. Now, Helper's from the Greek parakletos. This word is only found five times in Scripture. It's only found by John. It's used in the Gospel once in 1 John. The word parakletos has various meanings. It can mean advocate, intercessor, counselor, protector, supporter. The literal Greek etymology is from para, which means to the side, and kaleo, which means to summon, to summon to the side. You summon him to the side for help is the idea there. Therefore, it can be interpreted to mean call to someone's side in order to accompany, to console, to protect, to defend. There is no one-word English equivalent for parakletos. This is not a one word that we have that will fit with this. A lot of words you need to put together, basically, to get the idea. And it's really a legal term. You know, he's an advocate in a legal sense to come alongside and defend. He's also called the Spirit of Truth because why? He communicates truth. In 14.6, Yeshua claimed to be the truth. Well, the Spirit is to manifest Yeshua to bring that truth. So the paraclete represents Yeshua's presence in the believer. And when the world strikes out against the believer, it's striking out against Christ. This is why the world will treat Yeshua's disciples this way. They're going to treat them the same way they treated Christ because it's Christ in them. Now, through the paraclete's indwelling presence, Christ lives in believers, and therefore the world hates us because of the Christ dwelling within us. And again, that's why I say if the world doesn't hate you and you fit in with them, there's a problem there. Because it's Christ they hate. So you're not manifesting Christ. Now, you remember that Yeshua told His disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with the Spirit's power before they began to witness? Because they'd have been terrible failures on their own. Matter of fact, we see them before Pentecost failing over and over and over, right? They're constant failures before Pentecost. But after Pentecost, what happens to these fearful disciples? 
all of a sudden they're like, like incredible. You know, like they're taking on the establishment and they're not afraid. They don't care. I mean, they threaten them, they beat them, and they rejoice. The whole book of Acts gives us an amazing record of the Holy Spirit's power at work in believers to stand boldly before the hating world and proclaim the gospel. They say, don't say another word in that name. They said, we can't help but speak that name. You do whatever you got to do, but we're going to keep on preaching the gospel. He says, he will bear witness about me. See, when Yeshua departs from the world, he's not going to leave it without a continuing witness. How does he do that? Well, he does it through the word of God, which he has inspired, but he also does it through believers that he indwells. Peter said in Acts 5.32, and we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. And that's the two witnesses we see in this text. The believer is the witness. The Spirit is a witness. The Spirit will continue the witness to Christ after He returns to heaven. So the Lord goes to heaven. He sends the Spirit to empower believers, to indwell believers, to make His presence known. Now, <coughs> He says here, I will send to you, the Holy, He's talking about the Helper, I'm going to send the Helper to you from the Father. Now, in 14.16, Yeshua said that the Father would send the paraclete in answer to Yeshua's prayer. And in 14.26, Yeshua said that the Father would send the paraclete in Yeshua's name. But here Yeshua says He Himself will send the paraclete from the Father. Now, is this a discrepancy of some claim? Oh, you know, He said the Father's going to send, now He's saying He's sending Him. People, Yeshua continually claims to be acting on behalf of the Father. Now, they are so one that whatever they do is identified with each other. So, I'm not really sure why people would see that's a problem here at all if they're familiar with what's come before this text. They're so closely identified that sending the paraclete what from the Father from the Son, it doesn't really make any difference here. Now, he says, whom I will send to you. Some believe the work of the Holy Spirit is to testify about Yeshua to unbelievers, but this text is not saying that. This, he's sending the Spirit to His believers. He is going to indwell the believers that they might carry the message of the Gospel to the world. They're going to testify about Him. Now, does anybody know the significance of these words in church history? Whom I will send to you from the Father. No? Good, you're going to learn something today, whether you wanted to or not. It was the difference over these words that split the Eastern Orthodox Church from the Western Church. The Eastern Church adhered to the Nicene Creed, which affirmed belief in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. Here's the Nicene Creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Well, the Western Church sought to place emphasis on the Son as well as the Father, and thus they modified the wording of the Nicene Creed to read, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And as a consequence of this addition, the Orthodox churches rejected what has become known as the Philoque Clause, which affirms the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and not simply from the Father. Now the Philoque Clause was probably added to the creed around the 6th century in the Third Council of Toledo in 589, which was the council that didn't include the Eastern Church. All right, <clears throat> So they added this. And then the Eastern Church insisted 
that the Western church correct its creed to conform to the exact words of the Nicene Creed, and if not, they threatened separation. They would not remain in communion with the Western church. And so it was after a bitter strife, they separated. This text in John 15 has so much to say about believers loving one another and about the hatred that they experience from the world. And it's the very text that brought division among the saints. Now how sad is that? We're going to fight over a few words here. Now, it might seem trite, but there's reasons behind that. The reason the wording here became an issue was because of the old Arian heresy which denied the eternal coexistence of God the Father and the Son. In the first decade of the third century, the Alexandrian priest, Arius, began teaching the heresy that if the Son was a real Son, then the Father must have existed before Him. Therefore, the Divine Father must have existed before the Divine Son, and the Son is a created creature by God. We've talked about Arius. This in his heresy before he really denied the deity of Christ. That's at the center of this. He declared that the Son was the greatest and eldest of all God's creatures and was himself a God, but still created and therefore like all other creatures of essence or substance which previously had not existed. So Arius taught that the Father created the Son. You know, he's the next greatest thing. It was the Arian heresy that forced theologians to take a new approach to the discussion of the nature of the Trinity. And early Christian theologians reflected almost exclusively on the triune nature of God in the context of the economy of salvation and the aspect of revelation and redemption. After Arius introduced his heresy, it was necessary to focus on the identity of God the Son, which the with the Father, and later on the Holy Spirit's relationship with both the Father and and the Son. So this, this, this whole controversy is really about the deity of Christ. All right, This is the whole Arian thing. Arian saying no. You know, and the, he uses this clause here you know, that this was added and the Son because they want to show that the Son has deity. You know, all right? He didn't just come from the Father, but He came from the Son also. And that's what the text says. Well, to me, the important issue here in this verse is that Yeshua is speaking of the Holy Spirit as a living person, as part of the Godhead and fully God Himself. The Athanasian Creed states it this way, The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, One Son, not three sons. You see the detail they're going into to make sure you get what they're trying to say. One Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is a four or after another. None is greater nor less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. Alright, so this caused us, again, this text caused a split in the church, but it wasn't just over a few words. Really, the issue is about the deity of Christ. They're trying to fight for the deity of Christ. Alright? The Western Church. The Eastern Church saying that wasn't part of that. We need to take that out of there. So, all right, let's go back to our text. He said in verse 27, And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, what unique position as witnesses do the disciples that Yeshua is talking to fill? Well, they will provide the eyewitness accounts 
that first century generation of Yeshua's ministry. They saw His works. They listened firsthand to the teaching. And they're going to pass that on to people who are now coming into the church. They're carrying on the witness. So verse 25 and 26 tell us that when Yeshua departs from the world, He's not going to leave it without a continuing witness. In fact, there's going to be two witnesses. The paraclete, whom Yeshua will send, will continue to testify concerning Him, verse 26, and the disciple will also continue to testify to the world. These two witnesses in combination will provide even further, listen, even further hatred and hostility. Or before they had Christ to hate, a single individual. Now, you know, after Pentecost, you got thousands and thousands, so they guess what? They got a lot of people to hate, so it just explodes now. So he says in 16:1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, chapter 16 does not begin with a clear break in thought from the preceding chapter. This is not a good place for a chapter break. All right? And don't get offended when I say that because, you know, they're not inspired, okay? The chapter divisions are not inspired. They came much later. There are later editions, just like the paragraphs weren't there. Capitalization wasn't there. Punctuation wasn't there. Verses weren't there. I thank the Lord they're all there now. It makes life a lot easier, okay? But they're not in the original, so this is not a good place to put the break here. This section began in verse 18. It continues all the way through to 16.4a. And the theme of the world's hatred for the disciples and its persecution of them, which Yeshua discussed in 18-25, it just reappears here. After the interlude in 26 and 27 that introduces the work of the Spirit. Because because of all this persecution, they'll be able to do it because of the Spirit. And now he's going back to this subject. He says, I will say... I, I have said all these things to you. Now, this little phrase brackets this discourse. He says it again in verse 4. And this phrase actually occurs seven times in the last discourse. Here and in 4, it gives the purpose for telling the disciples about the coming persecution. Why is he telling them this? You know, I mean, he's got these guys together, and they're bummed out because he's leaving. And he says, well, don't worry, I'm leaving, but they're going to really hate you and persecute you. Well, that's not very encouraging, is it? These things, it refers to everything he said in chapter 15, verses 18 and following. He's telling the disciples ahead of time what's going to happen to them at the hand of the ungodly persecutors. And the reason he's doing this is to enable them to be spiritually armed for what they're about to face. Even though they did not understand everything Yeshua told them immediately, they're going to remember this, they're going to understand it later. He says, I'm telling you this to keep you from falling away. The words falling away here are from the Greek word skandalizo, which means one of the definitions is to be offended. I hate that. That's not a good definition today. To be offended. Everybody's offended today at everything. Okay? You have to have a safe space in colleges because kids get offended because you say something they don't like. It's ridiculous. So that, to be offended, and when they use that as a definition, it means to fall away, not, you know, oh, my feelings are hurt by that. Uh, it's kind of the idea of being caught off guard, caught in a trap. The Greek term was originally used of a baited trap for catching animals. Its metaphorical use in this context refers to believers not being caught aware by hateful actions of the unbelievers. Even the religious leaders. 
Let me ask you this. What He said, I've said these things to keep you from falling away. What keeps them from falling away? What's, what's going to keep them from falling away? Okay, but look what he says here. I've said these things. The things Yeshua said to them, his teaching is to keep them from falling away. Okay, it's the teaching. People, here's what we have to understand. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Knowledge is power. Education, right teaching, is the key to right behavior. And it's the key to standing strong. You've got to know. He's telling them, listen, people, this is going to happen. It's the truth contained in the teaching that will continually remind them and us and strengthen us in our faith. I see this principle in my life in a lot of areas, but I've seen it recently in the area of fasting. I've done a lot of research on intermittent fasting, prolonged fasting, and I found out that, you know, I do a fast every week, a prolonged fast, and I found out while I do that fast, if I watch some videos on the benefits of fasting, it just motivates me. It encourages me. You know, it, the videos they talk about what to expect, you know, and if you know all these things going in, it's like, I got this. Not a big deal. You know, but the, it's the idea that knowledge is power. And when you understand something, then you can deal with it. He's teaching them, I said these things to you. I'm telling you about the persecution. I'm telling you about the hatred. So you don't fall away when it happens. I don't want you to be caught off guard. I don't want you to say, oh, all of a sudden, I, I thought these people were supposed to love us. Now, if Yeshua's disciples had been exposed to and believed the health, wealth, gospel, what would have happened when persecution came? The de-emphasis on suffering in the health, wealth, gospel has veered into the heretical teaching that it's always God's will for you to enjoy financial prosperity and physical health. It's always His will. Did you know that? You're supposed to rebuke any sickness or suffering in the name of the Lord. And they don't even have the right name. They use Jesus. But that's supposed to make, you know, sickness. Oh, I'm getting out of here. You said that name. And if it continues, guess whose fault it is? You don't have enough faith. Had they believed this, they would have all abandoned the faith as soon as the persecution came. I mean, if you believe the health wealth gospel is every bit as damaging today as it ever has been. Because if you believe that, when life happens, God must not love me. I'm not rich. I'm sick. God must hate me. No. Look at the Apostle Paul. Okay? Read his testimony. It's not a, you know, one of health and financial prosperity. Not at all. Okay? They got it wrong, people. The only thing this health wealth gospel works for are the preachers who are preaching it. Because they're getting rich. Okay? Off the people's backs that they, you know, say, you got to send your seed money in. Okay? If you want to get healthy, send the seed money to me. You know? It's just a sick, sick system, all right? You see, up to this moment of time, the disciples really haven't been being persecuted in the time they spent with Yeshua. Yeshua's getting persecuted. They're, they're just kind of along for the ride. So Yeshua heads off the disillusionment that they would have by letting them know in advance, listen, the world 
hate you because it hates me. I'm going to be in you. It's going to hate you. They're going to want to kill you. So listen, you got to carry on the mission. You got to take the gospel to a world that hates you, wants to persecute you, but the reason they hate you is because of me. So you guys carry on the mission to the world after my departure. You're going to have everything you need. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now, that verse is kind of clear, I think. You know, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to be a Greek student or anything to understand what he's saying there. But some in our day obviously misinterpret this to say this. Okay, somehow they get this out of this verse. If you are a faithful follower of Christ, if you abide in Christ, all people will love you. You will always be healthy. You will acquire great wealth. And since he's talking specifically to the leaders of the church here, this particularly applies to leaders, and so they will translate this, you know, that leaders, they're going to acquire great wealth from those you preach to. You preach the gospel, they'll just fill you with wealth. You'll have tens of thousands of adoring fans who will literally worship you. You will build mega churches, monuments to your name. You'll fly the best private jets. You'll have the largest homes. You'll eat the finest foods. I don't think that's the right interpretation. Somehow people get that interpretation. They can't be right because from the time of our Lord's death, believers have suffered constant persecution, including ridicule, scorn. They've been hunted. They've been arrested. They've been beaten. They've been imprisoned. They've been executed. Please don't interpret these verses by American culture. Okay? We live in a kind of an isolated... They'll put you out of the synagogue. Aposunagagas. Okay? Remember that word. Aposunagagas. It means expelled from the synagogue. It appears only in the Gospel of John... And it's only three times here. By the time this gospel is written, this word had been used to describe Christians who were being expelled, kicked out of the synagogue because they worship Christ. This expression, if you remember, first appeared in John 9.22 where the Lord healed the blind man. Remember, He heals the blind man and they will talk to the blind man's parents. Hey, what? Hey, don't ask us. Ask Him. He's old enough, right? His parents said these things because they, were, they feared the Jews. For they'd already agreed that anyone confessed Yeshua should be put out of the synagogue. If anybody confesses him to be the Christ, they put him out. They de-synagogued him. This word was also used in chapter 12, verse 42. I love this one. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. These are the religious leaders. They're coming to faith in Christ. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. They're secret Christians, okay? so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now, I know we read these things, and, and I know that most within churchianity, okay, you know, that's, I'm making a distinction here between Christianity. Christianity is the church, Christians. Churchianity is all the external things that attach themselves to the church and maybe aren't even believers, all right? Most in churchianity would say, if I was put out of the church, big deal. It wouldn't make any difference in my life. And that's really sad, but I think it's true. Because believers, we're meant to be together. We're meant to have a body to to get together, to have fellowship, to 
Be like-minded. Have accountability. But pin, just you got to understand this: being put out of the synagogue, there's no comparison to being kicked out of a local church today. All right, you get kicked out of a local church. There's one right over there. There's one right over here. I mean, they're everywhere. You could literally walk from here to the next one. Okay, it's not a big deal. But if you were a first-century Jew and you were thrown out of the synagogue, it's basically like getting kicked out of the nation. There was no separation between the secular and the sacred. If you, were, you would be disassociated from your family. Your family would say, you're out of the synagogue, we can't talk to you. You would lose your job because no one's going to do business with you when you're de-synagogued. You'd lose your friends. Basically, you were a spiritual leper. You'd be reduced in many cases to begging because they just couldn't work. Because they were put out. To be de-synagogued would literally be to eliminate you from the hopes and the prerogatives of being Jewish. You're a rebel worse than a pagan Gentile. You would not be given the privilege of an honorable burial. You're just a religious outlaw. I mean, it separated you from everything. In the first century, there were three degrees of excommunication. Okay, so you might not get totally booted out all at once. They got, they got their little setup here. The lightest was called rebuke, which would ban a man for seven days. Seven days, no synagogue. Again, people today be like, oh, cool, take a, take a break, you know. <clears throat> no, nothing like today, okay. The next degree, meaning to cast out, lasted 30 days and carried a further penalty of shunning, in which people were required to stay four cubits from the offender. That's six feet. So if someone was de-synagogue, you, you can't go within six feet of them, all right. Then the most severe was krim, which meant that the offender was treated as though he was dead. They're dead. It was a fearful penalty to be excommunicated and declared one who was dead by his own people. It was a permanent expulsion, and it resulted in a curse on the offender that left him or her completely isolated from the community. So it's a big deal to get kicked out of the synagogue. He said, they're going to put you out of the synagogue. He said, indeed, an hour is coming when the person who kills you will think they're offering God a service. This is referring not to Yeshua's hour, but to the disciples' hour. The hour of the persecution is going to come upon them. Now, the pages of history are filled with thousands of examples of Christians of all ages, from every strata of society, from all walks of life, dying at the hand of executioners or persecutors for their faith in Christ. And I think you people are more familiar with this than anybody because we go over the persecuted church every week, talking about what's going on around the world. Now, we don't know this to be exactly true, but tradition says that all the apostles except John were martyred. Stephen was stoned to death. James, the brother of John, was beheaded by Herod, Agrippa. Philip suffered martyrdom. And Phrygia being scourged in prison and crucified. Matthew was slain with a halbeard in Nadaba. James, the less, was beaten or stoned at the age of 94, and finally had his brains dashed out with a fuller's club. Matthias was stoned and beheaded in Jerusalem. Andrew was crucified in Edessa on a cross with the two ends fixed transversely in the ground, hence the derivation of St. Andrew's cross. Marcus dragged the pieces in Alexandria. Peter, according to Jerome, was crucified at Rome under Nero with his head down, thinking himself unworthy to be crucified as his master. Jude was crucified, Bartholomew was crucified, Thomas was thrust through with a spear, Simon the Zealot was crucified, 
This is what tradition says. But so far as we know, the apostles and those who followed them often gave their lives for the testimony of the Lord Yeshua. Now, thinking about what tradition says here, here's what is kind of strange to me. You know, those who deny the resurrection, those who say the resurrection never happened, they say what happened is that these disciples, they went to the tomb, the tomb that was guarded by Roman soldiers. I don't know, they paid the soldiers off, they did something, put some magic spell on them, they all fell asleep. They went in there, they stole the body of Yeshua, and they hid it. Okay? And then they said, He's risen from the dead! So it's all a big lie. And then they all went out and suffered, were tortured, and died for a lie. Does that make any sense at all? (laughs) No, it doesn't. But it makes sense to some people who want to deny the resurrection. They knew that Christ was alive because they met the risen Christ. And once they were filled with the Spirit from Pentecost, they went out and they fulfilled this prophecy of our Lord here. The hour's coming. Clement of Rome, who died in 100 AD, wrote, Through jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars have been persecuted and put to death. It started out that way, people, with the church, and it's never stopped. The leaders of the Roman Empire persecuted and killed Christians during the first three centuries. The persecution of Christians reached a high point during the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers were appalled by the moral, ethical, and doctrinal corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. They spoke out against these corruptions. They denounced the Catholic Church. They denounced their system of salvation by works. The purchase of indulgences. That was a moneymaker, boy. They made some big money on that. The corruption of the Mass. The priesthood. Mariolatry. And all the rest of it. They spoke out against those things. And the response of the Roman Catholic Church was violent and massive persecution against those who spoke out. Historian John Dowling wrote the history of Romanism. And he wrote this in 1845. And in the book he said this, the Roman Catholic Church has put to death as many as 50 million heretics between A.D. 606, the birth of the papacy, and the mid-1800s. All in the name of God. The word service here is from the Greek word latiria, which means it's the normal word for priestly or religious service. Paul uses this word in Romans 12 too, which he says, which is your service to God. So it's used as the service to God. So people are going to kill you because they're serving God. They think they are. This is why doctrine is so important, people. Because people get crazy wrong doctrine and then they go off, you know, killing people. Now, because of the reference to service offered to God, it's almost certain that Yeshua has in mind here the Jewish opposition, because that's where it started. It arises from a religious conviction that is often the most severe and the brutal type of persecution. Because it's motivated by something they just feel is so right. And, I mean, we have a great illustration of this, right, in Paul, or Saul. Look at Acts 22.4. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Why? Why was he doing this? He was doing it to serve God. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Man, he did everything he could to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own. 
my own age, even among people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Paul is saying here, the more Christians I threw out of the synagogue, the more Christians I killed, the more I advanced in Judaism. Moving up the ranks here. Killing these people. He was serving, he thought, God. And there is certainly evidence that some rabbinic authorities held that slaying heretics could be an act of divine worship. They just, you kill them, that's worship. And they got this from uh, Numbers uh, 25-13, where Phinehas ran into the tent, took a spear, and he speared them both to the ground. They say, see, he's killing heretics. That's the willing word to do. If they disagree with our theology, <laughs> we get to kill them. You know, they don't have to have correct theology, just if they disagree with that theology. Whoever kills you will think they're offering a service to God. You know, the early persecutors were Jews. They persecuted Christians thinking they're serving God. The next wave of persecution came from the Romans, and they were persecuting Christians thinking that they were serving God. And Caesar was one of the gods that they served. Caesar was viewed as a god. During the Dark Ages, the Crusaders killed untold numbers of Jews and Arabs in the name of God. During the Middle Ages, the Catholics killed untold numbers of Protestants and Jews in the name of God. During the Reformation days, many thought that they were doing service to God when they burned Christians at the stake. Men like Tyndale, Huss, Cramner, Latimer, all those great Christian men who were burned at the stake, who were killed as martyrs, because these people thought they were serving their God by doing that. And more recently, self-declared Protestants of Nazi Germany killed millions of Jews while wearing uniforms that belt buckle wore the inscription, God with us. In the name of religion. Now in modern times, the greatest persecutor of Christianity across the world is who? Islam. Islam. And they think they're doing a service to God. You know why they think they're doing a service to God? Because the Koran says to kill Christians. But we got idiots today that don't know enough to read, obviously, and say, Islam is a peaceful religion. No, people, it is not. Their holy book, the book they go by, says kill the infidel. That's what they're supposed to do. They're doing what they're supposed to do. These are not radicals that are out doing this. These are fundamentalists. People who really believe it. The, the the ones, the Muslims who just fit in with everybody, they're not following the faith. Okay? Or they're sleepers, because they have a philosophy. Get in, be a sleeper, until the time there's enough, we're strong enough, then we rise up and we overthrow. People just look around what's happening. With the, I mean, they're taking over. Okay? And if our uh, Muslim leader was in power much longer, they probably would have uh, you know, taken over here, but... Thankfully, we got rid of him and got someone who loves America back in here and maybe turning things around a little bit. But they think they're serving their God because that's what their holy book says. You know, the Jews thought they were serving God. I mean, Paul did what he did because he thought, I'm serving God. He just was wrong. The Romans thought they were serving their God. The Catholic Church thought they were serving God. Muslims think they're serving God. And listen to this one, people. Futurists think they're serving God when they excommunicate preterists and throw them out of their churches. They really do. I mean, that's what we have to understand, people. Well, they, you know, 
when I became a preterist for the first time in my Christian life, I had just a little inkling of what persecution, to be persecuted for my faith was like. I'd never really been persecuted before. Now, we're getting thrown out of churches because we're heretics. Why? Because we believe that Yeshua kept His Word. I mean, that's, that's enough to persecute anybody. I mean, I mean, will you idiots really think He meant what He said? That's bottom line, people. That's what the issue is. We believe, He said soon, we believe He meant it. And they've thrown us out. But they think they're protecting their church because we got to get rid of you. Because all of a sudden now, did you know this, that eschatology is part of the Gospel. Believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ and have your eschatology straight and you shall be saved. I can't find that verse. It must be there though because a lot of people just think if you have your eschatology is wrong, you're going to hell. You're messed up. No, people. <laughs> Again, you know, they think they're serving God. So understand that. It's not a personal attack against you. They think they're serving God. They really do. We've got to protect the faith. I mean, we're waiting for the Lord to come back. He's going to do it eventually. I love the song. Maybe morning. Maybe noon. Maybe evening. And maybe soon. See that? Maybe soon? The Lord said soon. He didn't say maybe soon. He said He's coming soon. They say maybe soon. you got to say maybe soon because it's been 2,000 years and we don't know how long soon is anymore. Okay? I heard, I see that little meme that says you don't, you don't need theology. You need a dictionary. Soon means soon. Okay? You just need a dictionary to understand what some of these words mean. Alright? And, I, and I, you know, I, I feel a little uneasy here you throw in our persecution is in with these people who are dying and suffering for their faith. But in a sense, it's a light form of persecution that we experience because we're being excommunicated from other believers because we don't agree with them on theology, which they can't defend. But that doesn't bother them because they just hold to the tradition. The people who have persecuted and killed Christians throughout the years have done it in the name of their God and the name of religion. That's why truth is so important. So important. You know, there's so many Christians today who think that Israel, you know, God is for Israel. Whatever Israel does is okay because God is for them. I had a salesman in the house this week and he was dispensational to the max. And he goes, yeah, I love those Jews. Those Jews are great. He goes, you know, thank God they got the Abrahamic covenant. And I'm thinking, you don't know much about the Abrahamic covenant. Because the Abrahamic covenant is made to Abraham and Christ. That's who the Abraham, that's what Galatians said. It was made to Abraham and Christ. So unless they believe in Christ, guess what? They're in trouble. But see, most Christians, it's like, the Jews are great, we just got to support them. Because they don't know the truth. They don't know what the Bible says. Verse 3, and they will do these things, why? Because they don't know the Father or me. A bottom line, see, they're doing it for God, they're doing it to serve their God, but they don't know God. They're ignorant. Ignorance of Yeshua, ignorance of the Father is what's causing these problems. Since they don't know Yeshua, since they don't know the Father, their ignorance drives them to think they're serving God when they're killing God's people. Killing Christians. Sixteen four says, I've said these things to you. This is very similar to what he said in verse 1. They kind of bracket this section. 
He's essentially reiterating what he said there. I don't want you to be shocked. I've said these things because, listen, I want you to be prepared. This is going to happen. And people, I, I can't stress enough, the greatest thing we can do to prepare ourselves for anything is understanding. It's knowledge. When you know something, you can deal with things because you know what to expect. He says, I don't want you to be shocked. I want to fortify you in advance so when it comes, you know exactly what to expect. You're not shocked. You know, I get blown away when Christians have a flat tire and they're mad at God. How could He let this happen? I'm like, get your butt out of that car and change the tire and get going. Quit whining about God, you know, because you got a flat tire. That's persecution? I mean, this is ignorant theology that thinks God owes you rainbows and puppy dogs, you know? Get on with it. Life is difficult. Go ahead. Keep moving. And as long as you know that, you're going to be able to deal with it. When Yeshua was with the disciples, He basically was a lightning rod for persecution. But after He returned to the Father, they're going to catch the brunt of the opposition. So our Lord speaks these prophetic words so they'll be forewarned and forearmed. It's not easy to be a faithful witness for Christ in a hostile world. Now, the question that comes up all the time I hear, why does God allow Christians to suffer? Why? What's the purpose of suffering, of persecution in our lives? I'm sure we could find several reasons why God allows people to suffer, but I think one of the foremost is found in Paul's explanation here in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9, 10, 11. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. I want you to understand what's happened to us, the persecution we got in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I mean, we're to the point where we're going to die. They're just going to kill us. Watch verse 9. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Let me tell you something, people. That's what persecution, that's what suffering will do to you. But that was to make us rely. That's a hina purpose clause in the Greek. The purpose of suffering is to make us rely on God. Not on ourselves. We're so into ourselves, so trust in ourselves. I don't want you to rely on ourselves, but on God. Listen, don't worry about if they kill you. Why? Because God raises the dead. I think that's why Lazarus was the only one at the crucifixion. All the men were gone hiding like a bunch of little girls. And Lazarus is there. Why? I've been raised from the dead. <laughs> you guys don't sweat me. I don't sweat you. I know what's going to I know God and He raised me and I, you can't do anything. It's during the times people are suffering, it's during the times of persecution that we really learn to trust. To trust. You ever, ever doubt God's love for you, just look at Calvary. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's His love. It's demonstrated. He's proved His love for you. All right, so we asked, I asked you last week, what can we do to stop persecution? And we said, what? Nothing. This is part of being a Christian. If Christ is in you and you're living a godly life, you're going to suffer. But what can we do for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering and dying for their faith? Is there anything we can do for them? Thank you. Pray. Look what Paul says. We're continuing in the same text in 2 Corinthians. 
He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. Paul said, yeah, He saved us, but I'd like you to help us also so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. What we can do for the persecuted church is we can pray for them. Now, if that sounds trite to you, then you do not understand the nature of prayer or the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Father, in this country, we are so sheltered from this whole concept of persecution, of suffering for our faith. But Lord, we know our brothers and sisters around the country, around the world, are suffering like this. Lord, may we get behind them in prayer. Father, I thank You for Gennady and his bravery, his courage to go into the war zone and help people. And Father, we know the importance he puts on prayer. Pray You'd protect him, Lord. Keep him safe. Help us, Lord, to realize how important it is for us to pray for our brothers and sisters. Lord, I thank You for Your grace. I pray that You would be so demonstrated through our lives that the world would hate us and persecute us because of you. Amen.